Welcome to the Kickstart Garage, where we want to inspire and educate the leaders of tomorrow. Join us as we learn from the best in the business. Welcome back to the Kickstart Garage. I am your host, Gavin Quigley, and I'm accompanied by my co-host, Sam John Byrne. On today's show, we're joined by another exciting member of the Magnate 100 community in Managing Director of Sandler Training Ireland, as well as host of the Scaling Your Business podcast in Rian Lanigan. Rian, thanks for joining us today. Lads, I'm delighted to be here. I've been looking forward to this one all day. Good stuff, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to this as well. Um, it's, it's good getting, uh, getting right into all the Magnate community and there's some, some serious people in the group. So I'm looking forward to this one. And uh, I mean, we'll, we'll take a leaf out of your book, Rian. I know in, in your podcast, you like starting off with, you know, the background of the guests and where it all started. And we actually had a good chat there last week. I know you've got a pretty unique story. So, you know, let, let's do what I said. Let's take a leaf out of your book and start from the beginning. What were your early years like and, and how have your experiences as you've gotten older pushed you to, to where you are today? Yeah, early years were good. Um, for any listeners who don't know uh, where I live, I live out in Ratoth in County Meath, just on the border of Dublin. Technically, you could say it's Dublin because all our final day, it's basically blue out here. Um, not a Meath fan, actually, I'm a Kilkenny fan, but my parents are from Kilkenny. Uh, great childhood parents were uh, great parents of a younger brother and a younger sister uh growing up i couldn't really play a lot of sports um i eventually did but i have one kidney so my parents tried to stop me playing sports for as long as they could but let's say about 13 14 years old uh, i got into soccer and played three or four seasons for retote harps um but ultimately i wanted to play hurling and rugby but i had to settle on soccer because i only had one kidney and i didn't want to smack the uh, slitter to my kidney um traveled a lot went on a lot of adventures on sundays with my family we were very family oriented um and average student in school i got 355 points on my leaving cert probably could have worked harder wasn't really interested um when i put my mind to something i can do really well but when i'm not interested i switch off i remember through college i uh, did an internship in radisson strangely enough actually i got accepted you have to accept the first internship you get offered and I applied for Diageo and Radisson, and I got a call from Radisson offering me the internship, and I wanted Diageo, but I had to accept the first one. I should have just lied, but I accepted Radisson, and about 45 minutes later, Diageo rang me and offered me the job. Uh, I had to turn it down. Uh, again, I should have just lied, so if anyone's out there, lie, and you might get further. <laughs> but I, uh, yeah, took the job in Radisson, and when I went back to third year in college, or was it fourth year? I can't remember. Oh, I lived in France in second year for, for all of second year. When I went back to do fourth year, I just wasn't interested in college. I remember a couple of lectures calling me out on it that my interest had dropped. And I said, yeah, I understand what it's like to live in the real world and not interested in this. So my aim was to just pass. I got a 2-1, which wasn't too bad. And um, yeah, yeah. No, no uh, real complaints about my childhood in terms of sports. Sport mad. At the moment, I'm a UFC fan. I'll watch that every weekend. Big Kilkenny Hurling fan, season ticket holder, rugby fan as usual. Um, so yeah, no, uh, had a had a really good upbringing. Nice man, I like it. I like when you don't have any excuses or complaints. So hopefully everything keeps going well for you. Um, I was looking at your LinkedIn as you do, and I know you went to DIT. I believe you did tourism marketing. Was that a case of just it was on the CAO? Did you have a specific passion? Were, you, were your parents pushing you there? Or what, what was the main reason for, for doing it? So I was at a christening of my cousin. He's probably 12 now. I'm just about 28. So that would give you an, an age gap uh, difference if you can do the maths. And I had wanted for years to be the manager and owner of a hotel, or probably for a decade plus. And I remember what, talking to my uncle outside the christening. And he said to me, don't ever want to work in a hotel. The hours are ruthless, endless, and the pay is horrible. And I didn't believe him, but I researched it on Google and started talking to people. And uh, so my first choice of my CEO was going to be hotel management down in Shannon. And then I took that off from what my uncle said. He scared me enough to, to, to take it off. And I hadn't even put it down in my head. I'd put it on it. 
and I then had an interest in marketing. So I wanted to see what a combination of tourism marketing was like, put that in. There was a course on it, DIT. I think at the time it was 260 points. So I thought that should be handy enough. And uh, yeah, 355. So I got into it. So yes, it was my first choice, but was it my first choice all along in my head? No. It's a tough one, isn't it? You're at that age where you're like, I don't know, 18 or whatever age you have to put uh, you know, the choices on your CEO. I remember like my my granddad and a couple of my uncles were engineers. And so I thought, I'm going to be an engineer too. It, it kind of made sense. I had a bit of an interest in like how things were made and stuff. And I went to... I think it was called like higher options or something like that. One of those like trade shows. Yeah. And uh, In the RDS, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And a deadly event. Really cool. And I went up and I spoke to someone. I think he obviously, he was, must have just been an ambassador for UCD or, or something like that. And I was asking him, what's the crack with engineering? Like, do you reckon I'd be okay? And he's like, what, what, uh, what uh, thing are you doing in maths? Like higher or lower? And I was like, oh, I'm doing, I'm doing higher maths. And he's like, what do you think you're going to get? And I was like, oh, I don't know, like a, a C, maybe a B. I ended up getting a B, which is, is pretty decent. But he was like, okay, do you like maths? And I was like, no, not really. But I want to be I want to be an engineer. Like, that's kind of what I'm thinking of doing. And he goes, don't do it. I was like, what? what do you mean don't do it? And he was like, if you don't love maths more than anything in the world, don't be an engineer. And that just scared the living daylights out of me. So I was like, right, well, I'll do commerce. So, <laughs> and that was it. Early influences, man, are huge. It's a it's a real interest lately. Probably the last two or three months, how much your early influences influence you in later life in so many different aspects. You talked about the example of engineering there. I am um, my my father's an entrepreneur or business owner. May I say he left the corporate world after probably two decades and set up his own business. And I wanted to impress both my parents. So for fifth year, I chose physics to impress my mom and business to impress my dad naturally i was good at business but i was so bad at physics i failed physics and in sixth year i switched to doing construction studies so i half the time to catch up with everyone else and do the leaving cert and it was my highest score on any exam and it was just because i had a massive interest in it but i uh yeah so go with what your gut says don't go with uh things to impress other people yeah it's it's really fascinating how much of an influence those you know early teachers and coaches and, and stuff can have on you um but i want to ask one more you, actually sorry, one more before you jump on that actually another great influence is um uh, for first and second year in secondary school i hated french and looking back it was the teacher that i didn't like and her style of teaching and in third year about six months before the junior said a guy came in and started teaching us French and it wasn't just because he was a guy, but he was such a cool person that I had a massive shift and I, I loved French. And lo and behold, I had the opportunity to go on Erasmus to four different countries and I jumped on the opportunity to live in France for six months and that was all because of a teacher, yet again, early influences. But I'll stop yapping on about that and you can ask the next question. Yeah, no, it's good. It's, it's important for any teachers out there listening. You know, you, you hold a lot of weight in, in how you go about your job. Same as anyone. Um, But comparing your time in college and then, like you said, you know, doing Erasmus, I know you worked in Australia and then ended up running your own business. What were some of the main learnings that you experienced on that initial journey, initial career? And, and how would you compare your experiences with each other? You've done your research. Uh, it's your life. And ultimately, you're the one who has to make the decision. Most of the time, you already know the answer to the question you're asking someone. You're just looking or seeking for validation and for them to repeat the answer to you. Um, but I would certainly strongly advise, if possible, for everyone to uh, take the opportunity to Erasmus, if given it, and to live outside of your parents' house, whether that's you're from the countryside and you come to the big smoke, or you want to go to London or Australia or Canada or wherever it may be for a year or two, the, the growth you do uh, from gaining independence is phenomenal. You truly understand who you are uh, and you have a lot of conversations, internal conversations with yourself. Uh, you're forced to create new friends and get out of your comfort zone, grow as an individual, um, and you will hopefully uh, begin to really like yourself and who you become and don't uh, forget that uh, ultimately 
it's your decision what you do. Good advice, man. I really like it. And it, it comes across in the kind of just initial conversations I've had with you so far that you're you're a people person. If Forgive me if I'm wrong, but you, you're just very good at speaking with people and just kind of talking to people on, on their own level. And I'd say a lot of that does come just, just being cultured, I suppose, being in different countries and kind of striking up conversations with people from around the globe. But would I be wrong there? Or? No, I love it. Um, one of like I, I've I've any opportunity to to travel or to meet new people or add to my acquaintance lists, I'll jump on it. Um, I remember I did I traveled for six months abroad Europe with my friends, and even there, you know, getting the chance to chat to different people at bars and create new friends and invite people over for drinks and have drinks in the community area and going abroad and forcing myself to uh, go out and create new friends and uh, understand different people's personality styles and then kind of be able to pick up the little hidden things that you naturally get from engaging with so many people and then going, oh, I've seen this before, I should try to do this. Oh, I wonder if I did that. Um, yeah, I have, a, I have a fascination with people and I, 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 I picked this up from you when I spoke to you last week that, um, and it's rare that I pick this up, that when I chat to people, I could, let's say I'm chatting to someone now and again in four months time and we have a conversation. Sometimes I feel, I have felt in the past, I don't feel anymore rather silly that I'll remember all the small details about that individual and then I meet up with them four or five months later and they haven't remembered anything about me. And I remember all the small things about them. I used to see that as a weakness for years. I used to see that as, um, well, obviously I'm doing something wrong if I'm paying attention to all these small things because these are highly successful people. So they must be right. But I play that as a strength now. And, you know, um, uh, yeah, I have fascination with people. And that's kind of ultimately what led me to start the podcast. Um, I I really enjoy being able to remember things about people and then they, they they just light up going, well, how did he know that I am trying to attempt to get a boat license? I'm, I know because you told me four months ago when we met up, but when people talk about themselves, they uh, remember how you made them feel. And if you left someone feeling good, that you left a good impact on that person. So uh, in a roundabout way, yeah, I uh, I love it. Yeah, I, I love it as well, man. Um, and I I know, Reen, at the moment you you're doing the podcast. You're a managing director for uh, a Sander training franchise uh, in Ireland, and I know you've done uh, the JB sales fill in the funnel course as well. Um, what I wanted to ask is, do you think like it's possible for someone at a gradual level to go straight into uh, a sales job with only like let's say a degree or like a training course under their belt? Or do you think it takes a bit of a real world, you know, kinesthetic learning before you can be, you know, consistently performing and hitting target in, in a sales job? When you say graduate, like straight out of college? Yeah, straight out of college, just with, with no real experience. And, and by sales job, I kind of mean, you know, like uh, an inbound sales executive, like a telesales or like a business development manager or something like that. Yeah. I think any job you go for at a at a college. Well, some uh, I don't think there's a lot of people that are in sales that uh, perhaps once intended to end up in sales initially. Um, but I do think you can come straight out of a graduate job and go into sales. There's a couple of things you'd need to do. Um, you'd want to uh, work with a company that's willing to invest in you. I think one of the greatest things uh, you can use for your time at companies is to uh get paid by them to essentially learn and hone your craft whether you want to go on in later years and set up your own business or move on to a different business and eventually move your up to c-suite or even you don't even have to i know that's a lot of pressure these days that people say you got to keep climbing but some people might just like being a sales executive and earn really good money and have a good lifestyle um so it's entirely up to you and and, and work that out yourself but i certainly think that uh, starting out, you would definitely want to be open to the idea of reinforcement training and continual learning. Um, and it's it's shameful to say that there's very few people that have that attitude that would uh, believe in reinforcement training. You've brought up JB Sales, big fan of it. Um, but I see there's a lot of people in the industry that will have done 
I don't know, Jeb Blunt, and then they won't want to go near JB or Sandler because they'll be loyal to Jeb or keen in the gap selling or Sandler. And it's like, be open to the idea of all of them and understand which one works for you. And um, I lost my train of thought. Be open to the idea of all of them. Understand which one works for you, but don't uh, don't think that by reading a book or listening to a podcast that you've that you've ticked off the idea of investing yourself unless of course you've decided to take something from that book and test it and put it into action um you're 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 definitely kidding yourself um i would put aside a percentage of your money annually to invest in yourself if you look at any of the top athletes in terms of reinforcement they all invest in themselves whether it's health mental training um and i know a lot of people give examples of athletes probably because it's something everyone can relate with but if you're not getting reinforcement training provided one by the company, you should question why your company's not investing in you and perhaps go to a different company if possible, or certainly save so that you can afford to do that. Or two, invest in yourself. A lot of the people that I talked to that have got to the top, um, I don't know if you'll listen to this, but I don't, Danny will. Dave Matson, the CEO of Sandler Training, his parents remortgaged their house and gave him a million dollars to invest in Sandler. And he, throughout his entire career, invested in himself with his own money, put aside a percentage of his paycheck, you know? Um, so, end of rant, but definitely think it's possible for someone to come outside of a graduate degree. Uh, it's all about people skills, you know? Uh, asking good questions, the ability to listen, to build rapport, um, to understand someone's personality style. In life, there's several different kind of psychometrics, personality style tests you can do. I'd be familiar with the one disc which is uh, there's four different personality styles, four main personality styles, a D, an I, an S, or a C. Once you can understand which one you are and what the signs are for other people, you your ability to communicate and relate to other people changes massively and your success will change massively. So um, you might be at a, at a bit of a back foot against someone who's got experience in sales. But again, I'd counter that with, there's plenty of people in sales who've been in sales for five years but haven't got five years of experience. They've only got one year of experience repeated five times. So if you've got the 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 hard work, the the willingness and ability to invest in yourself, reinforce and learning, not to be loyal to one thing, but then also to get really good at listening and asking questions. I'll tell you, there was a breakthrough moment for me a couple a couple of years ago, maybe two years ago. I was sitting in Orlando with a guy called Marcus. And he said, he gave me, he asked me, could he give me a piece of advice or tip after watching me for three or four days? And he said, I want you to practice staying silent for eight seconds when you're talking to someone. And he says, the average human can stay silent for 2.3 seconds and then they find it awkward. But if you can stay silent for longer than that, more often than not, you'll get information out of someone that you naturally wouldn't have gotten in the past and taking that tip and i don't always remember to implement it but i try my best to implement it at all times and the amount of information i've gotten from just that alone is phenomenal yeah i mean something i've learned from working in sales the last few years is that like people generally make a buying decision based on either data or data or impulse one or the other and everyone is different and because it is like a common denominator that i think it's necessary no matter what it is that rapport and you don't build rapport with someone without being at least somewhat of a decent communicator and i kind of realized that i did that course as well the jb one great course phenomenal course but without actually implementing what you learn, like you're not going to go booking meetings, you're not going to go close anything, any sales. But uh, like report, is, it's a dark art in many ways as well. You know, there's a lot of different techniques. So I wanted to know what your approach is to, to building rapport and how important you think it is to, to having a, a successful sales career. Vital. A um, couple of tips. Understand your communication style, as I've said. Whether you want to take the disc outmatch test to understand your communication style. There's actually a great free tool you can get um, and it's remarkably accurate. It's called Crystal Nose. I'll send you a link to it and it can tell you via your LinkedIn profile what personality style you are. And you can also see what personality style other people are based on their LinkedIn profile. Um, it's not always 100% because sometimes people, particularly the C-suite, have their profile written by someone else who manages their page. But in most instances, it's accurate. So one is to understand your communication style, but then the ability to 
interpret and understand someone else's communication style so that you can better communicate with them. Um, I'd also say that a vital one that I've been focusing on a lot lately is equal business stature. Um, and that essentially is um, you'd want to think of yourself as what's the right? probably like a doctor where you are trying to understand your patients or let's say the word prospects problems, if they've got budget, if they've got the decision-making power, and if they are a proper fit for your product or service um, and make sure that you maintain equal business stature. A great quote I heard from someone once um, was pretend that you, uh, hold on, it was pretend, I'm financially independent and I don't need the business. So if you go in with that attitude and maintain equal business stature, that you, you'll, be, you'll be light years ahead of most as well. I'd always also say that you should you should you should be honest with people. If you are not a fit, help them find the right fit. If you know that, um, and then something I see some um, uh, sometimes C-suite people can have a large ego, um, and from talking to some of them, not all of them, you know, we all have an ego. Is when you're talking to them, they kind of feel like they're almost looking over your shoulder waiting for the next conversation to happen and they're not present in the current conversation. So I'd also say definitely try and remain present in that conversation. And the easy thing to do there is just practicing your listening skills um, and you're getting better at asking questions. A game that sometimes my friends and myself do, you might sound silly is like if we, and we haven't done that as an eight in ages because the pub haven't been open, but like if we want to find out who's going to buy the first round of drinks, what, we do is we do this game called the question game where I ask you a question and you can only respond to me with a question and we keep going back and forth until someone answers the question and the first person to answer the question buys a drink but essentially with that what that is doing is that is getting you better at asking questions and not automatically responding to a question so that when you're in a scenario like a sale you don't naturally respond to the question you think before you respond Sounds like a great way to go home sober. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I, I never go home sober. <laughs> um, I was going to say, like m- m- much of the, the principles that you've kind of reiterated there, they're, they're very similar to that of um, Dale Carnegie or Chris Voss. And we've, we've studied their principles in previous episodes as well. And they're, it's very similar from what you're saying. Um, but um, in, in one way or another, everybody sells, whether you're cold calling or trying to sell, sell your boss on the idea that, you know, you're the best candidate for a promotion. Just sometimes it might not always be so obvious. The idea in my head is that to be successful in sales, you have to be very charismatic and a likable person and just an extremely, you know, extremely extrovert type person. And as a result, if you're on the opposite end of that personality field and are more introvert orientated, you may struggle to to be successful in sales. And I was wondering for the individuals that are more introverted, what advice could you offer them to be more successful in sales? Or is there a, a more comfortable approach they could adopt to be better salespeople that, you know, say selling through a blog as opposed to face-to-face? So I was just wondering, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I'm definitely an extrovert. I'm not an introvert. Uh, but a lot of the top salespeople I know, I've referenced Dave Matson on this podcast already, uh, the owner of Sandler Training. Um, at a global level, that's worth about $150 million, $200 million. Uh, he's an introvert, and he speaks openly about it, and quite a few others are as well. So um, I don't know whether it's a, it's a myth, but I've found that some of the introverts I talk to are actually very good at listening and I referenced earlier on that that would probably be a key skill in building rapport. Um, now, I know my father's an introvert, and it's funny because when we go to events, sometimes we'll go together, and it's almost as if it's like a different person. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but like you go to the event, and he puts so much energy and focus into the clients and the prospects at the event that as soon as the event is over and we're back, let's say at the hotel bar or on the way back, his energy is completely gone and it drains him completely of his energy. Whereas I'm complete opposite of that. Whereas I get my energy from that. And if I don't get enough of that, my energy uh, 
depletes itself. So um, with introverts, they can kind of sometimes come across as obnoxious or particularly very direct, I feel. So uh, if you're an introvert, I'd be aware of that. Um, But you've got a real strength in, I feel, in any of the introverts I know, in the ability to listen and uh, ask good questions so you're already uh in a good good place um and if dave matson who's one of the top introverts i know uh can make it you can make it but also he is like a chameleon he adapts again going back probably a lesson in this to the communication style of the person that he's talking to and he's a genius at it but that only comes with practice it's a bit of self-awareness, isn't it? Kind of just, you know, acknowledging that you, you are that, uh, say, introverted person and then just honing in on your strengths and not so much the weaknesses that you have as, as a result of that. Um, and I, I, this is another question. I was like, I'm not sure if you've ever caught, uh, sorry, caught this interview, but it was between, it's a video that went viral a while back between Jordan Belford and Grant Cardone talking about sales. And um, obviously both these titans operate in the, the same field as yourself now in terms of sales training. And during the interview, there was a good discussion on selling the unsellable. And Grant highlighted that there's no difference between buyers and non-buyers, that everybody's a buyer. You know, the idea is that they might not be in the market for what you're selling now, but they might be in the market for, say, something else. Whereas Jordan was, you know, drilling home the point that you'll make more sales if you just move on from the ones that aren't interested. And with the with the idea that, you know, with the idea, you know, you're being uh you're selling only one particular product, um, which I think is, you know, more rooted in reality. Uh, so I was just wondering if I could get your thoughts on that as well and what filtering process you would use to increase the probability of achieving sales. Sure. Uh, if I was ever put on a poster with Grant and Jordan, I'd probably take Grant's name off it. Um, other than doing drugs, I don't know what else that man does. Um, so uh, he's not my cup of tea, but he's, some people love him. Um, I've watched them and I have watched that video that you're talking about. I actually think it was on Jordan Belfort's podcast, if I'm correct. Yeah, it would be. Um, I'd be more in tune with the idea of what Jordan's saying there. If what you said is Jordan is saying that the job is to find out whether what you've got to offer is a fit to your prospect. Uh, if they're not interested right now, it doesn't mean that they'll never be interested. Things change. Some people might not have been interested uh, in something like HR advice, a uh, small company might not have been interested in that uh, two years ago. Then COVID hit, they might want to know, you know, the legals of payment and what they can do with their staff and laying on and off. I talked to Caroline McGurney from the HR suite, and that's why I referenced that. Um, but I would certainly lean more towards what Jordan is saying. I would add to that and say that... Um, a lot of the clients that I've seen in any Sandler business, typically uh, most Sandler businesses will grow from or, or get into new accounts from. What I'm trying to say here is if we close Salesforce as a client and our point of contact in Salesforce is, let's just say Jeff Bezos, just for a nat natural name, and he then leaves Salesforce, if he's got a good experience with Sandler training, he's going to bring Sandler training into the next company he goes to and the next company he goes to. And then people within Salesforce, when they start their own company and they're a fan of Sandler, they'll bring Sandler into that. So that's kind of the the way I look at to, to like, they might not be in the position to buy or interested or even have buying power. You might be talking to the wrong person, but it doesn't mean that they'll never be interested. We've, I know my father has been in business in Sandler for 20 years this year, and he's had people that weren't in the, uh, weren't weren't interested in that particular moment, but have gone to a different organization. Like I'll give you one 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 great example is there was a guy who I think the company was Oracle, and he was looking to buy a specific software, and there was two companies in the running in the end, and uh, they uh, all signs common sense would point towards company A. But he actually chose company B, which are a smaller company and not Oracle's typical style. 
Um, and there was a lot of other things that you'd be kind of raising flags. And when asked over a cup of coffee why he chose the smaller company, it was they weren't that small, you know, maybe a thousand people. Uh, it was because he was actually thinking about leaving that company and going to work for another company. And he hadn't any experience with said company on his CV and wanted to add that to his CV. So what I'm trying to say here is um, your prospect may not be interested right now. It doesn't mean that they'll never be interested. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with you there. And uh, just sticking on the topic of Titans, there's another great quote from uh, Charlie Munger. um, For those who aren't familiar, it's Warren Buffett's business partner. And the quote is, the first rule of fishing is to fish where the fish are. Now, sales is completely outside my area of expertise, so I wouldn't be quite familiar with the technological nuance of the field. So my question is, uh, what kind of impact has data analytics had in terms of identifying prospective clients? And is there any particular uh, software or platforms that you'd use to find out where the fish are? Uh, I know the only kind of real experience that I had was from running an e-commerce store a while back. I know Facebook lookalike audience can be an extremely powerful tool for you know targeting um, perspective or prospective uh, profiles. Uh, but that's as far as my knowledge goes on the subject. If you know how to use the data, it can be incredibly powerful. A couple of things I've used. Uh, first one that jumps to mind is uh, a site like g2.com or what are they? Uh, you're one Latney. Uh, Six Sense. Six Sense is the other company. Basically, uh, it gives you information on buyer intent. If they've visited your website, if they've checked you out, if they've gone to a competitor's webinar. Um, really, really good buyer intent that it's up to you what you want to use the data for, but that can give you a unique advantage. And another one would be Sales Navigator. If you become familiar with building lists or um, downloading data on Sales Navigator, that can also put you in a really good position to get one step ahead, whether that's inviting prospects from lists you've built on Sales Navigator to webinars or industry events or uh, sending them like i know um gavin's interested in fishing and if i see an article on fishing and i remember that gavin's interested in fishing i might want to send gavin this article and say hey saw this was thinking of you and he'll probably get much more uh, value out of that than me trying to invite him to one of the 75 webinars he was invited to that week and he'll remember me more compared to the other 74 people who tried to invite him to a webinar. So yes, the answer is if you know how to use it correctly, data can be a massive advantage. Wow. That's, that's pretty cool. Um, in advance of this podcast, uh, I was watching a ton of sales videos and uh, one that struck me was a vlog from Gary V on the best strategy to increase sales was the title of the video. I think it was, um, episode 427 of daily v or something that's impressive um, you know the episode <laughs> <laughs> i'm a numbers guy um but for those that want to check uh, for, for sorry for, that's for those who want to check it out anyway um but uh inity quotes uh the best way to sell in the world is to have the customer come to you without you doing anything mm. and since starting this podcast we've had people reaching out asking for investment guidance tax advice everything nice and when I heard Gary say that, it really kind of hit home with me. You know, brand is a powerful tool to increase sales and it comes in the form of the content you produce, you know, that free value proposition you put out there. And just, I was just wondering if I could get your thoughts on using brand to increase sales. Cause I see you posting a load of, you know, clips from the podcast there recently on LinkedIn. And I was wondering what advice could you offer to those looking to build either their own personal brand or their company brand? I like Gary V too. Um, I'd probably respond to it with something Gary V would say. And actually, I'll, I'll start out with this. To, to, to get anyone's attention, for, to get anyone to take action, you must first get their attention. And a great way to get people's attention is to focus on building a brand. I start with knowing your audience and finding out things that they're interested in um, and then where your audience take place. So the first one is knowing your audience and things they're interested in or pains they have really easy. Gartner and likes the likes of those kind of companies 
will come out with a annual report on kind of the top 10 to 15 pains of said specific role, whatever role you are. If you're a CRO or CFO or whatever, they'll come out with the top kind of 10 to 20 pains so you can understand what your target demographic uh, are interested in learning about. So once you understand that, and where you can add value to those 10 to 20 pains, then find out where your target prospects spend their time. If it's B2B, could be LinkedIn. Uh, if it's B2C, it could be Instagram, it could be Facebook. But find out where they spend their time because you don't be wasting your time spending time where they're not spending their time. And with a combination of those two, we're creating good content targeted towards those 10 to 20 pains to the, in the right place. You can build an incredibly powerful a brand and then I did start this question or answering this question with saying I reference Gary V and the reference to Gary V would be to give, 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 and then get. So that's the whole, like, just keep giving content, keep giving content, building familiarity. And then when you've built familiarity, then you can ask and you will, and I have evidence to back this up and sounds like you guys have evidence to back this up as well. You will get more business yeah 100 i think that's come from his um what's that book uh jab 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 right hook is that the one yes i have yeah. that i do somewhere over in the corner yeah great book great book um so one last question on sales before i know gavin's going to take over for a few questions on podcasting so obviously sales is uh, an inherently you know target driven uh field more so than other professions personally i I like that incentive structure, even as an investor, it's great to, for, you know, aligning interests. Um, but unfortunately this type of incentive structure can take its toll on people mentally and financially if say rejection levels are high for a sustained period of time. So I was just wondering like, how do you deal say, or what advice could you offer for, uh, people that for dealing with rejection, uh, especially during those prolonged periods where there's no sales. Cool. That's a tough one. Um, Naturally, I leaned towards uh, every nose closer to a yes, but that's not going to help anyone that's listening that's suffering suffering from rejection. Um, so uh, you're not alone. I have gone through periods of this as well. Uh, we're all human. But if I want to give you a piece of advice, it would be, um, and I don't want to sound harsh saying this, but you're to blame if you're consistently quarter on quarter on quarter not hitting target. Um, and it's not because you're a bad person. Check out all your theory. Learn to detach your identity from your role. You wake up every day as identity as a 10 out of 10, but in specific roles, you might not be a 10 out of 10. So for example, I'm not a 10 out of 10 you know, hurler. In fact, I'd probably a one out of 10 hurler. That doesn't make me any less of a 10 out of 10 identity person. So if you're struggling from something like rejection, dive into IR theory and really understand that so you can separate the two identity and role but if you are looking for some tips to take action immediately it would be uh, and only if you are getting rejection again and again and again because rejection is part of sales that you'll that you'll get like every now and then i would go to your boss and ask for help in the form of a training course, a coach, uh, potentially needing to move department. You might think that you want to be in sales because you want to earn a lot of money and drive a Porsche, but you might be better suited to customer success or marketing. Um, I know a lot of people actually, and anyone who's in enablement might hate me for saying this, but a lot of people end up in enablement because they can't sell. That's not to say all enablement can't sell, but some people I see move from sales to enablement because they can't sell. doesn't make them a very bad person. Um, I'm not a great seller at all. I know my strengths. I'm, I'm great at communication and building rapport with people and um, and running a podcast. Uh, and, you know, I can sell, but uh, I remain that I start every day telling myself that I'm an I-10 and that in several different roles, I'm not a 10, but in some roles I am a 10 or I'm certainly striving to be a 10. So I don't know if that's helped anyone listening, but uh, I've always said that I'll open my diary for 15 minutes to anyone who wants to chat. So if you are facing rejection and you just want to get it off your chest and chat to someone, I'm sure the lads will put my email below or a link to my LinkedIn profile and feel free to drop me a message. 
Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I really appreciate that, Rian. I mean, it comes down to two things that you've mentioned there. Accountability, which I think no matter what job you're doing, you need to be accountable if you're not performing well. And just having the, I don't know what the word is, but just not being afraid of reaching out for help, which I think transcends across any problems you're facing in any aspect of your life. When you reach out for help, it's the old, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's like, a problem halved is a or problem shared is a problem halved. And when you reach out, you get a new perspective, no matter who it is, it could be someone who has no idea about your job. But when you reach out for help, it just offers a, a bit of a respite to the issue you're facing. It takes a bit of the weight off your shoulders. Um, so I, I mean, that's just my two cents on that. But Rian, you have been flying it lately with the, the Scaling Your Business podcast. I mean, especially over the last uh, month or so, I believe you're going kind of every day trying to get an episode out. And I've been listening to, to almost all of them. And you've had some really cool guests on it late. I want to know what made you, first of all, like start the podcast in the first place. And then also whether or not you started it with a specific objective in mind or a timeline or anything like that yeah sure i'll keep it short um i started the podcast because my father had a leadership podcast and was attracting a lot of sales leaders like robert cialdini and jeff hayden and jill conrad and then further afield like leaders from outreach and salesforce and we were thinking of launching a business leaders program when COVID hit and we had a large sales leaders following in a lot of our businesses within the likes of Salesforce and Microsoft. They're, they're clients of ours so and HopeSpot. So we needed to build an audience of business leaders. So I said, I'll be the voice of this podcast. And it was around the program that we ran. And the truth be told, we I did about seven to eight episodes. And I didn't really enjoy them because I was um, honing it around the program that was pre-built. And I was had an objective of... Uh, not really going into it any curiosity and I had one podcast scheduled that was with a friend and I didn't want to do any prep for it and I went into it without any prep without focusing on the blind spot course and it was my favorite podcast of all time and he gave me feedback saying that you're really talented at this podcasting thing I hope you keep it up and I took a break for a couple of weeks really focused on where I wanted to go to uh, I was lucky that I had successfully exited a business I founded three and a half years prior and it was a successful exit. So I had enough money to kind of keep me going for till the end of the year, basically. And I sat down and said, if I was to do this and make a career out of it, what would that look like without uh, making some of the mistakes I see other podcasters make? And I kind of locked myself in a room for a long time and mapped out the vision from forward to front and back to front and all that and left to right and everything and yeah went fully at it and that's one of the things I said as I'd go at it daily so I don't know if that's answered your question of why I start. I did answer a question of why I started I don't know if there was a second part to that question though uh yeah just was there a specific objective or or goal in mind somewhere that you'd like to be by a specific timeline you know yeah well I want to be the number one uh, business podcast uh, in Europe uh english speaking so um and i want to be able to turn it into a business in the so it, um, i don't think i've ever said this publicly before but the, the goal is self-employed people struggle when they go to get mortgage approval compared to those who work in let's say the public sector my girlfriend's a teacher she'd have no issue getting a mortgage in comparison to me they're a lot stricter and self-employed. So I want to be able to go to someone and get mortgage approval uh, by able to showcasing them something that is a business rather than just, hey, I chat to someone daily. So that was the kind of the whole purpose, to build a business around it and an element of that to be the daily podcast. I love it, man. Th thinking big, and that's why you're, you're in the Magnate group. Um, Something you mentioned there was your natural talent of speaking naturally without a script um, on the specific episode that you have was, was one of your favorites when you hadn't worried too much about, uh, you know, preparing for it. So talk to us about that, that process. I mean, when it comes to the planning and preparation, you know, for sourcing the guests in the first place as well. Like, do you do a lot of research? Do you treat it as like the same way you would prospecting in sales? Or what, what is your plan for having that, that pipeline of guests full? Yeah, I had this frustration earlier on today because I had a guest cancel or postpone. And 
it's frustrating because I'm trying to put them out daily. And when you're kind of, if you want to put out five a day at this stage, I'm going to have to schedule 10 a week because sometimes they postpone. And I understand it's not a priority of theirs, but I also understand that a lot of the podcasts they've previously been on, um, the podcasts don't have the greatest reputation. Some of them don't. Um, where I'll put in six hours, five, six hours of research on a guest, each guest. So when a guest cancels or postpones, I want to make sure that they're aware that, that it's not a, the usual podcast that I've done a lot of research. So to answer your question about like how I go about and approach each podcast, it would be, uh, I'd listen to previous podcasts that are on. I do a deep dive into their LinkedIn to find out what university they went to, what their previous roles were. Um, if there were any common connections, I might get in contact with common connections and ask questions. Um, but I really find my favorite part of the podcast. There's two favorite parts, actually. Um, my favorite part, the first part of the podcast is actually searching for the information on the individual. It's kind of reminds me of my tourism marketing days where you're putting together a package for someone to go on holidays. But in this sense, I'm putting together a package for each podcast that I'm doing. That's the way I kind of look at it, if that makes any sense. And the second way, uh, thing that I get enjoyment out of is when someone says to me, and they genuinely mean it, and I can tell if they genuinely mean it, is that's a really good question. I absolutely love that as well. So I kind of do the podcast so that uh, those two things can keep happening. Yeah, I mean, I, I think myself and Sam would be on a similar wavelength largely with, with regards to the planning and, and also the goals that you've mentioned and something I like that you've said is the thinking big wanted to be the biggest business podcast in Europe English speaking of course um, and it leads to what I want to ask which is you know there's a million podcasts out there these days it is getting more competitive with the likes of you know you've got your scaling your business podcast we've Gary Fox's The Entrepreneur Experiment and there's even new ones like 15 Minute Coffee which is very good and our one the kickstart garage of course so i want to ask you know put your your goggles to look into the future you know get the what the the mystic ball or whatever you call it and, and try and figure out what what the podcast industry looks like over the next while how do you see it developing i mean do you think it's going to become as saturated as content with or as as platforms like like YouTube, or do you think there'll always be space to to grow? You're definitely fighting, and you're going to continue to fight more and more and more for people's attention. If you can be niche, that's great. Um, but also, there's advantages to being big. If you focus solely on Ireland, uh, you've got an audience of five million, and if you focus solely on Ireland, let's say marketing, you probably got a smaller audience. So you really got to think before you start a podcast. In, in that sense, but I can see the investments, the likes of Apple with the subscription model they recently launched and Spotify, you know, purchasing the Joe Rogan and a lot of other podcasts out there. The Prince Harry, I think they purchased one of his his podcasts as well. And I know they purchased others. So just It's not hitting my head at the moment what they have purchased, but there's definitely a huge investment in podcasting. I know Acast is an Irish podcast agency that's consistently continuing to grow month on month on month they're hiring currently as well so all signs are pointing towards podcast growth do i think it will become as saturated as youtube i don't know so and i tell you why i don't know because sometimes when i talk to people uh in advance of a podcast they'll say to me how long is the podcast and i might push it back on them and they'll say i only listen to podcasts for 30 minutes and then where you know, only podcasts for 30 minutes are going to be successful. And it's like, well, no, not really. Joe Rogan's the biggest podcast in the world, and he's anything from two to three hours. So there's no real definition of a defined podcast. So what I mean by that is everyone has their ways that they prefer to learn. Some people uh, are auditory. Some people like to, to visual. Some people like to watch. Some people like to read. If you can cater to your audience in those different areas, you can you can outgrow most. But uh do I think the area uh, industry will continue to grow rapidly? Yes. Do I think it will become as crowded as YouTube? Probably not. But will I think it will become saturated? Yes, which is now is a good time to get in, better than tomorrow, not as good as yesterday. But uh, define your audience before you do get in. Yeah, I think a lot of people overlook um, being being niche. Um, it, it does uh, help a lot. 
Um, anyway, I know we're kind of coming up towards the end here. So we just have a few. Well, we have one question from the Magnate group, and it comes from Kevin Owens, founder and CEO of Sneaker Cleaner, who we'll have on the show next week. Um, Kevin asks how much you enjoy the actual process of producing your podcast. I love it. Every element of it, finding the guest, landing a big guest, researching the guest for five or six hours, uh, recording with the guest when they give you a compliment that you've done your research or you have asked a good question uh, to editing it afterwards and uh, reaffirming to yourself that that was a good podcast to putting it out and getting the endorphin hit or the dopamine hit when you get the likes and you see the downloads continuing to go up every single aspect of it I love. Yeah, I, I love every single bit of it as well. I think one of the best bits is actually just sitting there and we're going for a walk and listening back to the podcast because it all goes by so quickly when you're on it. Yeah, it sounds strange. I've never I've never openly admitted to that, but sometimes I do listen to my own podcast and I'll be like, that was a good podcast. Yeah, it, it's so hard to actively listen as much as you would in a normal conversation when you're on a podcast but i think that that's what lends to a better podcast so it's great to listen back and listening back from me as well you think oh my god why am i stirring over my words or why did i say that thing or like you know the stupid little things that, that you pick up on so it's all about improving at the end of the day but really well, that's it it helps you improve exactly yeah i mean i think we'll wrap it up there i mean we've we've gone through uh, all the questions we had for you um it, it's been an absolute pleasure to sit down and chat with you i can't wait to see the moves you make both with the podcast even though in, in some ways you'll be a competitor i absolutely love the podcast and I, I think you've had some fantastic guests so can't wait to see who you have on in the future um and i'm, I'm sure our listeners are just as excited as well so for people looking to find out more about you we will leave some links in the description below but can you tell them a little bit more where they can go to find out more about you Sure. Your reference being a competitor, I actually think that will help us both be stronger. I don't look at you as competition. Uh, I'd like to look at you as a drinking partner in the future. So if you're down for a pint, more than happy to. But uh, Always. in terms of finding finding me, uh, LinkedIn, Instagram, my name is um, not the most common name, Rian Lanigan. So type my name in and I'm probably the only... Well, I know Conor McGregor's new son is called Rian Lanigan. So, but he probably doesn't have any social accounts yet. So I'm probably the only one with a social account at the moment. Good stuff. Right. Well, for everyone listening, thank you very much. As always, we will catch you in the next one. And Rain, thanks again for coming on. Cheers, lads. Thanks for listening to the Kickstart Garage. This show is for entertainment purposes only. This show is for entertainment purposes only. No one on the show has provided investment advice. The information provided by the Kickstart Garage podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The opinions and views expressed on the Kickstart Garage podcast or those of the participants do not reflect those of the host or sponsors. The Kickstart Garage, its producers, sponsors, hosts and guests shall not be liable for losses resulting from the investment decisions based upon the opinions or viewpoints presented on the Kickstart Garage.